This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. The hot, cold contrast just destroys it. Well, that's what you have when magma meets seawater. These huge explosions. And the news story, the memorable news story, was, you know, this poor Icelandic fisherman who's just, he left his port in the Vestman Islands. He's gone to the southwest to, you know, get his catch of fish. And like out of nowhere, the ocean explodes in this massive steam explosion. Steam column rises, you know, hugely in the air. It's huge noise. You can imagine the waves it creates. And it was like, what? I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. So when we look at the typical map on Google Maps or in an atlas or whatever, our first thought is an island is any piece of solid ground separated from the other bits by some water. So we could include Greenland and England and Madagascar along with Hawaii and the Maldives and Easter Island and so on and so forth. When you dig into the geology of things, it gets a little more complicated. And for today, let's just divide it into two kinds. Some of those islands I listed, when you look at their underpinnings geologically, they're actually fragments of the adjacent continent. So Madagascar, there's now sort of a rift between Madagascar and mainland Africa, but the structure underneath Madagascar is distinctly continental. The structure underneath Greenland is distinctly continental. And in fact, not only is the structure under England very continental, but there's been some fascinating marine archaeology done in, in fairly recent years that have discovered the fact that what we now consider the underwater regions between south and east of England over to the European mainland, they were once upon a time, in when sea levels were lower, they were high and dry, and they were actually settled lands. So if you want to look into that, one of the areas is now called Dogger Bank because it's an underwater bank. But it's begun to be named or dubbed, I guess is right, by the archaeologists as Doggerland, and they're finding considerable signs of some advanced civilizations in what we now consider underwater. So those are islands on the map from our point of view, but they're continental fragments. Then you come to a place like 
well, famously Iceland, but the island we'll talk about later today, Surtsey, which is southwest of Iceland, or the Tuamoto Islands, the Hawaiian Islands in the Pacific. Those are truly oceanic. They they started as volcanoes on the seafloor that built progressively higher and higher and higher till they eventually pierced the surface of the ocean. That starts with big explosions as hot lava hits cold seawater and it all it shatters like the hot piece of ceramic that you dip into cold water suddenly. It shatters, it becomes showers of ash. If those accumulations of ash get armored over with flows of lava, which hardens to be a pretty tough rock, then the island can grow even further and endure for quite some time, as the Hawaiian Islands have done, for example. So oceanic islands are unique in that way. They can pop up in the middle of an ocean out of what you never had any idea something was going on below the surface until wham, big explosion, suddenly new island. And one of the stories there that has always fascinated biologists is how does an absolutely blank, solid black rock, new volcano like you know, the nascent Hawaii, how do those islands become the lush green islands we know them to be today? They're out in the middle of nowhere. How does biology get started there? What comes in first? What comes in next? What's the cascade that builds it up to what we know now? And one of the unique and interesting aspects of the story of Surtsey was that was the first time in the modern scientific era that one of these seafloor volcanoes built up enough to break the ocean surface become a real island, and basically give scientists a chance to watch this process of biological succession onto virgin, brand new, freshly formed lava rock. The Hawaiian island chain is, as you would expect, quite well studied, populated, and so forth and so on. And it's emblematic of a number of island chains in the Pacific. So the way to think about Hawaii in simple terms is think of a thick sheet of wax that's moving slowly in one direction above a candle. I mean, really slowly. So the candle manages to melt through the wax as it moves slowly over. The wax layer in this case is the geologic plate of the Pacific Ocean, and it's moving at a geologically pretty spiffy pace, centimeter, so a couple centimeters a year, to the northwest, northwest. So as that piece keeps moving over the candle, where the candle is at the moment becomes the place where the active volcanoes are at the moment. And as the plate moves further to the sort of upper left, you end up with the volcanoes that first formed now become static. They begin to weather. They begin to age. Biology starts to make their way in. At the lower right-hand portion of that line is where the candle currently is. And that's where the active volcano is. So in the case of Hawaiian Islands, we don't have a candle. We have what's called a mantle plume. It's this large column of, of hot, viscous rock coming up from the depths of the earth. We don't have a layer of wax. We have an oceanic plate, a geologic slab of things. But that same notion of the hot spot melts the bottom of the plate and creates the liquid rock that makes its way up and becomes magma and a volcano, that's what's happening. So Kauai at the upper left-hand end of the Hawaiian island chain, uh, that's the oldest island that's above water in that chain. If you stripped the water away, you would see some other islands further to the west-northwest that are so old they've cooled and sort of sunk below sea level again. They're now seamounts, not islands as we would call them. 
And if you think about it, and this has just been in the news in the last couple of weeks, where are the active volcanoes in the Hawaiian island chain? They're on the big island, which is at the lower right-hand end of that line. And you have both Mauna Loa and Kilauea that have been erupting just within the last couple of weeks. So that's one kind of hot, hot spot ocean islands. Iceland and Surtsey are different. They did not form right at the middle of a big plate of wax, like I just described. Because the other thing that's happening in ocean basins, happens in the Atlantic, is ocean plates are pulling apart. So in the Pacific, you've got the middle of a big sheet of wax with a hot spot underneath it. That creates the volcanoes. If you could peel all the water away from the Pacific, you'd see a lot of lines that are parallel to the Hawaiian Islands that show that same phenomena. In the Atlantic, you get these ocean islands where the volcanic activity that's forming right at the center line, where the plates are pulling apart, some offshoots develop on the flanks of that that can build up and become seamounts. So Iceland straddles that zone where the plates are pulling apart. I mean, all of Iceland is an oceanic rift zone, basically. And just southwest, maybe 20 or 30 miles southwest of Iceland, is another little island group called the Vestman Islands. They're all built by volcanic activity. They're all dormant now, uh, including Surtsey, which has been dormant for 40-some years. But this is all that different kind of volcano. It's not a hot spot. It's perhaps not a hot spot. There's a little debate whether there was a hot spot under Iceland, and that's why you got so much magma, so much lava, and you built such a large, you built a thing as large as Iceland instead of just a little speck of an island. But that's not critical to today. It's just now you've got a rift zone where things are pulling apart instead of the middle of a flat plate, and you get a lot of volcanic activity in those zones where the ocean plates are pulling apart. And Iceland and Circe are part of that kind of volcanic activity. The rock type, if you take a chunk of the rock and analyze it chemically from Hawaii and Iceland, they're very, very similar. Not identical, but they're quite similar compared to the rocks you would find in the, in the Andes or in the Scottish Highlands. There is no good way to predict in advance a volcanic eruption. It's not like weather forecasting, say three days from now, here comes a storm. Scientists have learned some signs that often indicate an eruption is coming. It's easier to do with volcanoes that are on land, obviously, because one thing is to watch for swarms and clusters of earthquakes that tell you where this molten liquid is easing its way through cracks deep in the earth and sort of squidging the rocks out of its way to find its way to an open surface and flow somewhere. So you can see these clusters and patterns of earthquakes. But those don't always end up in eruption. You know, sometimes the magma is moving around and it, you know, it doesn't quite get to the surface that time. Maybe it's never going to get to the surface, but you can tell it's moving. The other thing on a, on a dry land volcano, it's been done a little bit in submarine volcanoes, but more on dry land volcanoes, uh, you can put along, around the flanks of the mountain something called a tilt meter. And if the magma chamber underneath that volcano is in fact filling and inflating, like a balloon, you will see the slope of the mountain change ever so slightly. That can be your warning sign that you know this balloon is filling up and could reach a point where it's there'll be enough pressure in it that it will help blast the magma through to the surface, or it will help the magma escape to the surface. Again, sometimes you see some magma move in and the mountain inflates, but nothing yet comes to the surface. So we've got 
instruments that can give us telltale signs that things are happening underneath the volcano, but they're not one-for-one predictions that this one's going to blow. So sadly, often the way we know a volcano is going to blow is there's either a loud explosion or someone sees a lava fountain and goes, oh, look, it's erupting. So we talked about Hawaii, that the newest island, the active volcanoes are the big island at the southeastern end of the chain. There is a seamount underwater a little further southeast of the big island of Hawaii called Loihi, L-O-I-H-I. And scientists have been watching that for a number of years. It, it has been slowly building towards the surface. I forget now how deep it is. It's a kilometer or more deep, so it's still quite a bit down. But that's one they, they're keeping an eye on because as the plate keeps moving to the northwest, the effect of the hot spot should move towards Loihi. And it's conceivable at some point that will become the next new Hawaiian island or maybe coalesce into the big island. You know, who knows? But we're talking geologic time here. We're not talking next week or next year. We're probably talking long spans of geologic time. So Surtsi, my favorite metaphor, having done this in my mother's kitchen several times, is you take a you know a piece of glass or crockware out of the oven or something that is not thermally tempered Pyrex, and you put it under the cold water to rinse it, and it goes bam, and it shatters into a million pieces. The hot, cold contrast just destroys it. Well, that's what you have when magma meets seawater. These huge explosions, and the news story, the memorable news story, was you know this poor Icelandic fisherman who's just he left his port in the Vestman Islands. He's gone to the southwest to you know get his catch of fish. And like out of nowhere, the ocean explodes in this massive steam explosion. Steam column rises, you know, hugely in the air. It's huge noise. You can imagine the waves it creates. And it was like, what? (laughs) What's happening here? Obviously, everyone floods in and starts paying attention. Maybe the volcanologists in Iceland sort of knew something was brewing down there. I don't remember that detail. I would have been 12, if it was November 63, I guess maybe just 12 years old. But a kid that was always interested in you know, what was going on in the world and you know, read magazines and newspapers. So I remember, I remember being fascinated by what is this, what's happening, and, and also the human interest of the story. Imagine being that fisherman just out there minding your business and the ocean explodes, right? And then, of course, the, the eruption went on, I mean, off and on for a number of years, I mean, many years, actually. But, you know, it faded out of the news at some point. But I do remember, I remember following, to some degree, the drama of, so there's now something, there's now, there's now an edifice, there's now stuff. It's not just steam blasted through, but it's starting to leave stuff. It's building an island. You know, first it's just all this ash that falls out after you shatter all the magma. And then and then there's the drama of, well, the ash will all just wash away. I mean, it's, you know, it's a stormy sea up there. The ash will all just wash away and it won't ever really become an island unless some lava starts to flow out because that will, like, armor coat it. Oh, wait, here's some lava. And sort of following this race between the lava and the ash and the lava and the ash, I remember that was a, a storyline for some amount of time that fascinated me. But at that time... I mean, my sense of what I was going to do with my life was go to college, learn a lot of languages, 
you know, I had no specific career objective in mind, no title or job that I was aiming at. I was, you know, going to go find a way to travel the world. And so this was fascinating because it was an interesting part of the world. But in no way did it connect in my mind to someday knowing more about Circe will be part of my life. It was just, see, this is one of the reasons you want to get to go travel other places. Interesting things are happening other places. So I, I would guess within a year or so, it had you know, faded completely from my attention. I went in 1973 on a research ship that was doing work in the waters between Iceland and Greenland. So it was just a, a port call and a day or so to noodle around Reykjavik. Uh, and then I was back the following year for a conference, a geological conference. And so that time, you know, we had all our meetings in Reykjavik for several days. But given it was a bunch of, you know, highfalutin geologists, they had laid on a really fabulous sort of Iceland in a nutshell tour through the southwest part of the country. So I, I had gotten out into the countryside and, you know, seen up close a goodly number of the volcanic features of Iceland uh, in the company of the big names in that field at the time. I, I was a very, very young first-year graduate student who was trying not to be overawed by these these grand figures in my field and just try to enjoy their company and learn from them. Then they were great in that. They were not... They were not ego-stomping their way through these trips. It was really good fun. So I was quite entranced with Iceland from, from that time on. That 1974 trip, we did get out to the Vestman Islands. Circe's a little further south of those. And uh, you know, there's another story to tell there about walking on another brand new volcano that was still so hot it melted my boots, but we'll save that for a later time. <laughs> and already by then, if I recall the dates correctly, the government of Iceland had established Surtsey as a research preserve. I mean, Icelanders are fascinated by volcanoes. If you think about this most recent volcano south and west of the capital city, Reykjavik, it was a tourist attraction. There'd be you know, hundreds of people hiking out to watch the eruption on a weekend. So Icelanders just love to go watch these things. The scientific community in Iceland and the government realized that Surtsey was a perfect and unique, extraordinary experiment to have the opportunity to watch which was, for the first time in the modern scientific era, a brand new island, a brand new oceanic island had formed right before your eyes. And as it's formed, it's made of absolutely nothing except rock and ash. And what will happen? Will biological life manage to get a toehold there? How will that happen? What species will come in? So to watch the process of biological succession that probably is the North Atlantic analog to what happened in Hawaii as the all-brown hard volcanoes progressively got more vegetated and more full of life. We have a chance here to watch the North Atlantic version of that saga right before our eyes. But only if people are not going out there and inadvertently bringing in seeds on their shoes or dung or back, you know, artificially introducing things that will distort that natural process. So no one gets to go out there except researchers. And they, on the eastern side of the island, they scraped off and leveled a little patch of ground just, just big enough for a helicopter to land on. And they moved in a small prefabricated hut so that if you had a pair of researchers out on the island, they will need shelter. It's a stormy, windy place. So a little building that they could shelter in 
with a porta potty and a, and a bit of a stove and and that's it and you cannot just go out there you can fly over it if you want in a helicopter to get a gander but you cannot just go out there and go walk about and you know see the island as a tourist we want to unravel the story of how whether and if and how biological life can get a toehold on a brand new island at this latitude in the north atlantic so we can only do that if we don't mess it up with our footprints i think it probably was the entire global volcanology community who realized, I mean, this is not just once in a lifetime. This is once in a scientific era. This has undoubtedly happened in Earth history before, but never in the modern scientific era where we have you know, the instruments, the knowledge, the capability to watch it and monitor it the way we can now. So let's treat it like a research patient. I went there with the board of directors of the Explorers Club of New York. That you know, old-time renowned organization that didn't even let women in until 1981. All the grand names in exploration are early founding members, Roald Amundsen, Robert Peary, Sir Edmund Hillary, and so forth. So the board is going to meet in Iceland because the president of Iceland has become interested in having a chapter of the club set up in Reykjavik. And a few months earlier, the president of Iceland brought several luminaries from uh, nature and science in Iceland down to New York for the big gala dinner of the Explorers Club. You know, made some contacts, you made some friends, let the leadership of the club know what he hoped to have happen, and invited them to bring the board to Iceland for their next meeting. So off we go to Iceland. And the first event in this several days of meetings, the first event upon our arrival was a luncheon that the president hosted for us at the presidential residence, which is out of town, I don't know, six or seven miles, 10 miles maybe, west of town. It's at a farmstead that has a history that dates back, has its roots in the saga time. So it's this you know, renowned location in Iceland. In we go, lovely setting. And as it turns out, I'm seated next to the Explorers Club president because I'm the shiny toy, you know, the token astronaut in the room. And directly across from me is the president of Iceland. Small table, six or eight of us, I think. Lovely chat, very informal feeling lunch. And at some point, the president, whose name is Oliver, looks over to me and asks, what are my plans after the meeting? Am I heading right back to the United States? Well, I wasn't planning to go right back to the States. I'm back in Iceland again. Haven't been there since the mid-70s. Now know a couple of these Icelanders. I'm going to tour around or visit, you know, get to know them a little better. And he asks then if I had any specific plans for where I wanted to go. And there's one favorite region of mine southeast of town on the mainland I thought I might get back to. But I also said that I remembered watching the early eruption of Surtsey as a young girl. And you know, I'd always been fascinated by Surtsey in Iceland. And if there were any way to do it, what I'd most love to do is get out to Surtsey. And he says, well... Isn't that convenient? You're at the right table. This gentleman right here is the man who issues permits. And he turns, I forget that gentleman's name, but, you know, the ball is now in his court and he starts explaining the things I already know, that it's a research preserve and, well, it's just not open. And, you know, you really, I mean, it's, you know, for all the reasons, he goes through a whole why it's, why it's a preserve, what the purpose is, how important that is. And so, you know, it's just, it's not open ever. It's only open to scientists. At which point the president says, ah, but she's a scientist. 
So this poor guy is now completely cornered, right? His president has put him on the spot saying, you need to talk to this guy. And then he's told the guy, she meets your criterion. <laughs> what's, what's your problem? So the poor guy kind of starts tap dancing and, you know, shifts gears pretty quickly and says, well, well, that's true. That's fine. And, and, and therefore, I would gladly extend you a permit. Happy to do that. There is, of course, no transportation out to the island. So there's the problem is there's there's no way to get there. You know, there's I suppose if you could make some arrangement, but there's there's really no way to get there. To which my initial reaction was, watch this. <laughs> so knowing I had a permit in hand and pretty directly the blessing of the president of Iceland, I went quickly to these two Icelanders who had come down to New York. One is one of the country's most renowned nature photographers. Another is a qualified geologist and renowned guide through all the geological terrains of Iceland. And I told them, hey, I've got a permit. How do you get there? And this is where Iceland being Iceland and the society being what it is comes into play. It's, it's a fairly small country. Reykjavik at the time might have been might have been 300,000 inhabitants. It's maybe 400 now, but it's still a fairly small city. And it's always seemed to me a very closely knit society in many, many ways. So any time something has come up, like how do you get to Surtsey or a friend is sick, someone you know either knows the right person or has a cousin who knows the right person. It's like, it's not six degrees at Kevin Bacon, it's like two at the most. So it was like lickety split. Ragnar knows someone whose cousin is in the Coast Guard and blah, 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 blah. And the next thing you know, the Coast Guard flies missions regularly down over the Vestman Islands and out over Surtsey. The helicopter can take five people in addition to the pilot and co-pilot. And for a set fee, there's a mission two days from now and they'll drop you there. They will then go on and fly their mission and come back. Assuming events don't intervene, they'll come back and pick you up at an arranged time. So we can get you there, we can get you back. And then we dug into, well, what exactly do we need to know about spending a goodly part of a day on Surtsey? And the short answer there is that little cabin that's set up for researchers. There's two people working in it and it is stocked and equipped just for those two people. So you need to have in your knapsack everything you could possibly need for the day. You know. If it's going to get cold, if it's going to get rainy, if you're going to need food, if you're going to need water. If the helicopter can't get back at the arranged time to pick you up for some reason and you end up staying overnight, chances are they'll let you sleep in the hut, likely on the floor, but chances are they'll let you sleep in the shelter. But you can't be raiding their food stocks, so you might want to think about another breakfast and another lunch just in case. So we put our heads around all of that and loaded up our knapsacks and met the helicopter and off we went. We landed at the little landing pad, left our life jackets, of course, with the chopper guys. I think we said hello to the people in the hut at that time, just let them know what we were planning to do. We then hiked uphill. There are two crescents where the big vents had been on Surtsey. The ash cones built up quite high and half of half of the two cones has since been eroded away. So there's these you know, two outer rims of these cones that touch each other. We went up to the top of one of them to get the overview of the whole island. And along the way, and we were just as curious as you know the scientists that set up the reserve in the first place, 
the eruption stopped in 69, 73, I forget. It went, it went for five or six years. So by 2005, it's been 30 plus years since it stopped. How much vegetation and other signs of life are on the island now? Uh, there were little patches of a small mossy kind of plant, little round patches up to about a foot diameter. There were little bits of tall grasses in little nooks and crevices. There were little pockets of, of fish bone and bird bone that birds had scavenged and deposited. We were careful to always step around those, not step in them and or, you know, kick ash over them. Made our way up to the top, got this overview, you know, taking a zillion photographs along the way, got this overview of the island, and then the waves have crafted a long spit to the north of Surtsey. So it's got sort of a bit of a roundish bottom and then a long nose that sticks up pointing towards Iceland. You know, black ash and sand. We hiked down to that and uh, found some gigantic bits of driftwood to sit on. I mean, I'm talking full tree-sized bits of driftwood uh, and fishing floats to sit down and have our lunch on and relax a bit and then made our way back to the hut. I did visit a little longer with the researchers then before we heard the chopper come back in. They did get back to pick us up on time. I think we each had food enough for a dinner, a breakfast, and an extra lunch and all fresher stuff than they had in the hut on the island. So they were really happy to get our leftovers when we left. I've allowed myself to essentially <laughs> just be the, the eager tourist and if not tried to follow all the geological or biological literature about it. But I would imagine there are parts of the island that at 2005 anyway, still seem to be losing the erosion race. So it's you know, not clear that Circe will last you know, forever and ever. But I, I would expect, you know, those little patches that we've seen will become more numerous. Maybe some of them starting to coalesce, become almost, you know, zones of greenery. It sure looked to us like the premise was confirmed that the birds are the import agents. Seabirds are the import agents that are bringing seeds or they finish munching on a fish. And some of the stuff that was in the fish guts starts to provide some of the nutrients that plants and other things can then capitalize on because basaltic rock and ash are, they're, they're pretty barren. There's not a lot of nutrients in them. So you've got to get something that can grow like the seed of a plant and then there's got to be some nutrient for that to start going. Eventually, if you can get some root mass going under that vegetation, you know, root mass will start to process, especially the volcanic ash, into more of a soil. So that's another thing you're watching for is the process of, the, of rock being converted to soil, which is a biological process that turns rock into soil. You know, I've done other expeditions since then to a variety of small and very isolated ocean islands from ships, not helicopters. And in all of those cases, great care is taken to make sure that you sort of mush your boots in an antiseptic solution before you go ashore. And you do it again when you come back just to double the chances that you don't take anything from one island to another. I am just pulled a bit of a web page up about Surtsey, which now is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site, by the way. And this says that since 1964, when they started the observations, seeds have arrived carried by ocean currents and birds. They've seen the appearance of molds, bacteria, and fungi. 1965, the first vascular plants and within a decade, there were 10, you know, higher order plants. By 2004, there were 60 vascular plants, 75 bryophytes, 71 lichens, 
24 fungi, 89 species of birds have been recorded there, 335 species of invertebrates, you know, worms and things like that. So life definitely making its way in there. You know, when I go back to Iceland nowadays, I think back to my first trips in 1973 and 74. It was all black rock. I mean, Reykjavik and its environment, the road out to the airport, Keflavik. You know, the airport at Reykjavik has not got a code for Reykjavik. It has a code for Keflavik, partly because that's the nearby town, but also because until sometime in the 70s, that was a U.S. Navy base critical to the Cold War. And in 1973 and 74, when I went out to Keflavik, it was like stepping into a little patch of Texas transplanted into Iceland. I mean, this little bubble of intense Americana amid Iceland. But back then, in the summertime, you'd see squads of school-age children, young teen to older teen, going around town planting saplings. That was their community project summer work, to plant saplings because the citizens and leadership of Reykjavik wanted the town eventually to have some greenery. I go back to Reykjavik now, I'm startled by how green it is compared to then. It may still look barren to people who go there for the first time now, but let me tell you, it is a whole lot greener. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.